Well, today is a startlingly beautiful day, a spring day in Charleston, South Carolina. And as you go out in this beautiful day and you see the creation proclaiming the greatness of God in every leaf, every blade of grass, every bird, it's hard to imagine and to understand what the Bible says when it says that the creation is groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. So even the creation around us, as beautiful as today is, there will be a glorious day when we have the new heavens and the new earth, and the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth will make today look as if it's a very minimal day. But even that's a reflection of our lives. Some people's lives, metaphorically speaking, match today. They're, they're doing well. The skies are blue. The sun is shining. Other people are kind of like it was on Thursday this week, cloudy, rainy, wind-blowing. They're in despair or discouragement, but, 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 but no matter where you are, whether it's blue skies or whether it's cloudy or whether it's overcast or you have hurricane warnings, all of us are in the midst of fighting against evil forces. There is a glorious God who is triune in his glory and is unchanging, and there are wicked forces that want to cloud our eyes to the beauty and the vision and the grandeur and the goodness of Christ. One of the devil's chief schemes is to keep us in darkness and secrecy. And so there's a quote in the worship guide from a guy named John Murray that says this. We're going to talk about the assurance of our salvation out of 2 Peter. And John Murray, who taught at Westminster, says this. The facts are that the more intelligent and the more deep and the more unwavering the assurance of our salvation is, the humbler, the more stable, and the more obedient will be the life, walk, and conduct of the believer. But to understand the eternal covenant-keeping, unchanging love of God for us makes us humble and teachable and gracious and loving and kind. And so this is an incredibly important issue. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. This Letters supposedly from a junior demon to a senior demon about how to keep a new convert from going on in faith. And in one of the letters, he says this, the devil writing to a junior devil saying, there is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy, God. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against God. And in part of that Anxiety is not understanding that we are truly in union with Jesus Christ and we are saved. In Zephaniah chapter 3, a book in the Old Testament written to the people of God who are about to go, the southern kingdom, to go into experience of judgment. Zephaniah, in his short books, comes to chapter 3, and he looks ahead to the coming of the kingdom of God, the messianic rule of the living Christ. And this is what Zephaniah says in chapter 3 and verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Verse 17. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. Zephaniah 317. Can you show it? I, I hit something wrong up here. I'm, I, I'm uh, that's it. Let me tell you a real quick story. It has nothing to do with this and we'll get back to it. 
I'm not as bad as some people are technologically. I can't, I can't get the screen to show. I wonder what, here's something up here. Just hit that. No, anyway. So I've got a good buddy in Columbia named Dick Lincoln. And he's a pastor of Shandon Baptist. And just a delight to me. So we are, I met him at, at Chick-fil-A the other day for a breakfast. He was in town. And I got there early. And he, he drives up. And I go out to greet him. And he's standing there staring at a young woman taking orders on an iPad as cars go through, you know. And uh, it's kind of embarrassing. He's kind of just standing there looking like a calf looking at a new fence, you know, just what's going on. And so he's standing there, and I walk up to him and say, hey, dude, he says, excuse me, ma'am. Says, Are you taking orders on your iPad? She says, yes. He said, how cool is that? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my gosh. I thought I was bad. That is really bad. But anyway, show Zephaniah 317. I'm going to have to tell you when to show it. So anyway, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's who God is. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He's rejoiced over you. He will quiet you with his love. And this is all looking to the coming reign of Messiah King, how much more should we say? If I'm on my deathbed and somebody says, we can read one chapter of the Bible to you before you go into uh, eternity, I would say, man, read Romans 8. Let me just read some of the things from Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, my personal obedience... Weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. In other words, what I could never do for myself, but Jesus did for me. And then he says, verse 14, for, for all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the, the promise of Romans 8, you have received the spirit of fear but the spirit of adoption. When you came to Jesus and by the spirit of adoption, you cry out, blessed Dear Father, Abba Father. See, I, I want that for you and I want that for me. I want to have the, the assurance of saying that with joy in light of the glory of the cross. And so, R.C. Sproul has a little book called Essential Christian Doctrine. And in that book, he says there are four types of people that will go to church today. There are those who say, I'm not a believer in Jesus, and I know I'm not. And I'm glad, I'm so glad you're here. I pray that God will open your eyes to see the beauty of the cross and the forgiveness of sin. All of us at one time were there, one way or another. So I'm not, and then there are those who say, I've trusted Christ, I'm a believer, but I'm just not assured that I'm really going to heaven if I die. I struggle. And then there are those, who's where I want us all to be. Say, I've trusted Christ, and I know that if I die, I will go to heaven today. And then there are those who say, 
You know, I have a familial faith or an environmental faith or a cultural faith, and I guess I kind of sort of call myself a Christian, but it doesn't make any difference. And he says, those are people who think they might be saved, but they're definitely probably not. And I've said last week, when you meet somebody who is backslidden in their faith and they're not walking with the Lord, it's probably the right thing to say, I know they're not saved because you don't know their heart because Christians do fall into sin. They don't stay there, but they fall into sin. And if you see somebody that's backslidden and living a life of disobedience, you should never say to them, I know for certain they are saved because we know we're saved by our fruit. Fruit doesn't save us. Faith saves us, but fruit is the evidence of our faith. It's hugely important. So my prayer is that, is that people that, that, that say they think they're trusting Christ, but they're not assured, will get, we'll get, we'll get the assurance this week as they think about the things of God. And people that are dependent on a family faith or an environmental faith really deal with the fact that they need to have personal faith in Christ, a faith that produces fruit. I told you last week, the scariest passage in all the Bible to me, potentially, is found in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says with striking clarity, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, which is a term of affection, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says, many will come to me on the day of judgment. Not a few, but many. I don't know how many. Many are, but they're more than just a handful. Many will come to me on the day of judgment and say, Lord, did we not preach in your name and, and, and in your name heal people and in your name cast out demons in, in your name? And Jesus says, I'll look at them and tell them very plainly, I never knew you. Not you've fallen away, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity or, or people who live in unrepentant sin. So it's, it is an incredibly daunting and frightening prospect that should call deep sobriety from our spirit. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing with some very difficult issues in the church at Corinth. And the, the good news is the last part of that passage where it says this, these type of people will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you know, you, he says, some of you lived in vile ways before you came to know Christ, but God saved you. And, and so you're washed, you're clean, you're sanctified, you're declared righteous, you're justified in the name of, of God. And that's the really good news. But then he's dealing with these thorny issues. And this is what he says, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such for some of you, he says, yeah. But you've been changed by the power of the cross of Jesus, by the Spirit of God. So, so I look at this and I go, you know, um, for example, you meet somebody, swindlers. It says swindlers won't inherit the kingdom of God. You meet a man who says, you know, I, I, uh, 
What do you do? Well, I go from city to city, and I set up a Ponzi scheme, and I cheat widows out of their life savings. But I love Jesus. I really love the Lord. Now, I said, well, you know, according to the Bible, you are a liar. Because somebody who goes on in sin without repentance, with no remorse, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or somebody says, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a slanderer. I just love to destroy people's character. I go to places and say things that aren't true or things that, say things that might be true but should not be said. And so I just love to cut down the character of people and to make them look horrible, to make me look good. But, but you know what? I can't wait to go to church this Sunday. I love the music. I love the Lord. Well, the Bible says, you're a liar. You're a liar. Or somebody says, you know, I, I know the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, and it's a covenant relationship, and sex is for marriage. It's a great joy, and it's, a, it's, it's something God has given us because he's good. He says, but I, you know what? I've just got to have a different partner every month. But I love the Lord. I just, I'm, I'm thinking about next month. You know, this is April's coming to an end. A couple weeks, what's going to happen next month? And, and I'm, I said, listen, let me just be honest with you. If that's the way you live, you are a liar. And see, that's why this whole issue, there's a tsunami in our culture today, the, the LGBT issue. It, it, it's not something that's a culturally marginal issue. It's, it goes to the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower. We, I mean, this whole issue about if you're physiologically a male and you want to go to the female bathroom because you really are intrinsically in your psyche a female, go for it. Or vice versa. I mean, it's just, sometimes it's so silly, you don't know how do I even respond to this. But we say, no, you know, gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. That's the way God, and it goes to the heart of who I am as a man or who someone is as a woman. And, and, and a presidential candidate said this week, much to my chagrin, he says, when it comes to this bathroom usage, which I think is just silly discussions, this bathroom usage, so just take a deep breath and get over it. I'm saying you can't get over it if you hold the scripture to be true. You just can't. And, and so this is who we are. There's a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was on April the 9th, 1945, he was put to death by the Nazis. He was a Lutheran pastor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as a 27, 28-year-old man, this is un unbelievable, 27, 28, 1933, Hitler comes to power. He gives a radio address, and in the midst of the radio address, he says, we do not follow a man or an ideology. We follow Christ. And any ideology or man who purports himself to be in front of Christ should be rejected, and they turn the power off. That's 33. That's just when Hitler came to power. He was 27, 28. He saw it. So he's put to death when he's 39 years of age, just weeks before the liberation of Germany. And he wrote a book a few years before that called The Cost of Discipleship. And it's a marvelous book. And, and Bonhoeffer is really addressing the, the cultural Lutheranism of Germany. And let me just read a paragraph. He says this. What has happened to all those warnings of Martin Luther against preaching the gospel in such a manner as to make men rest secure in ungodly living? This cheap grace, compared to biblical grace, has been disastrous to the spiritual lives of the German people. 
Instead of opening up the way to Christ, it has closed it. Instead of calling us to follow Christ, it has hardened us in our disobedience. Deceived and weakened, men felt that they were strong now and that they were in possession of this cheap grace, which is not biblical grace, whereas they had in fact lost the power to live the life of discipleship and obedience, which flows from Jesus. The word of cheap grace or familial faith or environmental faith has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of salvation by works, close quote. He says, this, this cheap grace, which isn't biblical grace, this cheap grace, which doesn't say obey, has done more to ruin the church than any heresy that says you're saved by works. Strong statement. And so that's that person. So now I want to talk about the person who says, yes, I think I've trusted Christ, but... I just don't have assurance. I just don't know. Well, first of all, you're not on an island by yourself. Many people struggle with this. In fact, I'm going to read you some statements that tell us that the assurance of salvation is not part of coming to faith in Christ, that many godly people struggle with this issue. But I hope as we go through this that you'll get, start going to a place where you'll have the ability to sing and dance and rejoice and be glad in the Lord. So there's a man named J.P. Boyce who is from Charleston, South Carolina, and he started a school called Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that is a great seminary today. He spent his whole fortune to start Southern Baptist Seminary. But he, he wrote a little question and answer issue in the, regarding the Christian faith. We call it a catechism. And let me just read four questions. This is J.P. Boyce. What is meant by the assurance of salvation? Answer, it is an undoubting conviction of our acceptance in Christ. Undoubting conviction. Next question. Do all people of God attain it? Answer, it is not attained by all. Third question, is not an assurance of salvation an essential of saving faith? Answer, it is not. Doubts and fears assail believers sometimes to the end of their life. Four, is it not desirable to attain this grace, the assurance of salvation? Answer, it is not only very desirable... But we are expressly commanded to seek for it. So he says it's very desirable, but you may struggle. Charles Hodge, who taught at Princeton, and his systematic theology said this, to make assurances of personal salvation essential to faith is to, it is to be contrary to Scripture and to the experience of God's people. The Bible speaks of a weak faith that is still saving faith. In fact, all of us pray at one time or another, like the man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Then Hodge says this, scriptures and experience teach that assurance is not only attainable, but it is a privilege and a duty. Did you hear that? It's a privilege and a duty. So I want to just walk through some statements and then some observations regarding the assurance of salvation. And I want some people here to leave rejoicing because you're assured or to start the road to get there. Number one, so how do you know you're a Christian? Number one, am I trusting today, this hour, 
on this day? Am I trusting today in the work of Christ on the cross for my sin? Not necessarily thinking about what happened five years ago or ten years ago, as wonderful as that may be, but am I trusting today for the forgiveness of my sin through the work of Jesus on the cross as my substitute? And, and, and do I have a, a heart and a, a desire to be pleasing unto him as I walk in obedience? So, so the question that I learned years ago when you're trying to share the gospel, you ask this question, talk to somebody, and you say to them, if I were to say to you today that you're going to go, you're going to die and stand before the gates of heaven, and the Lord would say to you, why should I let you into my eternal and holy heaven? What would you say? And there's only one correct answer. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That's it. Now, a few months ago, I was talking to somebody I love very much. I've known them for a while, and, I, and they've heard the gospel time after time after time. They're asking me questions. I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, if you were to die today, and you'd go and stand before the Almighty God, and he would say, why should I let you into my eternal heaven, holy heaven, what would you say? And this person said this, hmm. I tried really hard. And I went, wrong answer. I said, come on. I said, what? I said, you, you've heard that. I mean, I know we'll lift a fuss. You, you know, you've heard. I said, the only way you get in heaven is because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And they said, oh, yes, and that too. And I went, no, 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 it's not, and that too. It's that. It's that. See, get rid of the cultural middle class Americana do good works to get their faith. That's from the pit of hell. It clouds the cross, robs the cross of his glory. So are you trusting Christ today? Secondly, is there observable, objective evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your heart to produce the life of Jesus? I was reviewing this fruit of the Spirit, praying through this. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And just praying through them and saying, Lord, are, are, are they in my life? And I, I read a little book recently on kindness. And it says that, that, that kindness is, 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 I like this, is spontaneous, it's usually unexpected, and it touches people in the depth of their being. It's unexpected, it's spontaneous, and it touches people in the depth of their being. I said, Lord, make me a kind person. And let the fruit of the Spirit bubble forth in my life. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this, this one paragraph, let me read it. And I just thought, wow. He says, says there are some people who profess to be Christians but whose influence on others is to discourage them and to drag them down and to injure their faith and to provoke controversy and divisiveness. The result of their life and ministry is not to build up others and to build up the church but to tear it down. On the other hand, 
There are those who seem to edify or build up others in every conversation, in every prayer, in every work of ministry they put their hands to. And Jesus said regarding false prophets, you will know them by their fruits. And I got to tell you, when I read that paragraph and I thought about it, I, I thought of people who claim to be Christians who I've experienced who tear everything up. I don't know their heart. But then I got the second part of that quote where and people, every prayer, every word, every hug, every thought builds people and cares for people and loves people. There are certain people that came to mind. And so the question is, is there objective evidence as people look at my life that Christ is real? Thirdly, is there a long-term pattern of obedience? That's the, that's the whole theme of, of first or second Peter. Peter says in verse 10, he says, make your calling and your election sure. Because if you do these things, you will never fail. What are these things? We cover them week after week. That these things will add to your faith, goodness, and to your goodness, knowledge, and the knowledge, self-control, and the self-control, perseverance, and the perseverance, godliness, and the godliness, brotherly kindness, and the brotherly kindness, love. And you look at that and you say, is there a long-term pattern of obedience in my life. Now, we all struggle. We all fail. But we get off the mat to the glory of God and we go forward. And we walk in repentance. And, and, we, and we, keep, we keep pushing, if you're a believer. So you ask yourself these questions. Are you really trusting Christ? Is there evidence of faith that flows from your life? Is there a pattern of obedience that's long-term? Then three observations. Church, if I had two minutes to give an address to the church at large around the world. I only had two minutes to speak to believers. This is what I would say. It'd probably be over two minutes, but this is what I would try to say. People struggle in their Christian faith in many ways because they view their lives through the lens of performance or growth in Christ instead of the lens of being declared righteous in the sight of God. So the lens of performance, show the stick figure with the calendar. Okay, that's good. So, so the, the lens of performance says, oh, okay, this day, April 17th, I've got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. And, and if I do all these things, then God will love me. If I do not, somehow I will not make the travel squad. And so your whole life, you look at your life through the lens of what you can do for God or do for others. And to me, my best hour of my best day of the best week of my life, I need the blood of Jesus to cover my sins. I do. My secret thoughts, my inclinations, the things I don't say that I'm tempted to say, I need the work of Jesus, the blood of Jesus to cover my sins. And if I live that way, I'm filled with uncertainty, I'm filled with suspense, I'm filled with anxiety. Do I really measure up? Conversely, there's, if you view your life through the lens of the cross of Jesus, through what he's done for you, there's joy and singing and laughter and dancing and freedom. Freedom. You, you, you say, I, I belong to the Lord. I am his. I am perfect in Jesus. I love the hymns. I love singing hymns. And so let me just give you a few hymns I've been thinking about. So, so one goes like this. My faith has found a resting place. 
not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. She got it. His wounds for me shall plead. Christ is in heaven praying for me right now, for his people right now. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Or this stanza. My sin, my sin, oh, oh, oh the, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. My sins are forgiven. And, and when you see that your sins are forgiven, you see the glory of the cross, it awakens joy and laughter and singing and obedience in your life. Or this hymn, my favorite hymn, I think, but close to my favorite hymn, by a guy named Charles Wesley. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? See, no condemnation. No condemnation, now I dread. You see, it awakens freedom and joy and spontaneity and wonder and dancing. Dancing and laughter. No condemnation. There's something about, I love sports, there's something about, about, about a, a guy who knows he's not going to be benched, who plays with freedom and joy. I play for different coaches. Some coaches looked at me and said, I will never bench you unless you are loafing. I had other coaches who would pull me out when I made one mistake. When I played for Coach A, man, it was fun. Coach B, tentative. Oh, maybe, oh, I don't know. Now, I was thinking about this and just hit me up. I mean, years ago, I used to love to watch Brett Favre play, play for the Packers. And at the height of his career, he just played like a junior high boy on the playground with freedom and fun. It was just fun. It was fun to watch the Packers. See, that, that, that's what this does in your life. So, so look at your life through the lens of the finished work of Jesus, not your performance, because your performance on your best day will not measure up. Number two, this is from me. Um, so I haven't read anywhere, but I, I believe, church, there are times where you have an existential moment of affirmation or decision-making. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Let's say that you're, you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation. And you're just saying, well, I think I've trusted Christ, but I, I just, sometimes I get confused about looking through what lens. And, and so this is what I would, I would say. It's a beautiful day um, in a beautiful city. Today or sometime this week, just do this study, this pray. God said, God, give me wisdom. But, but go out to the Isle of Palms and the 21st Avenue. Maybe you, let's say you were saved and you're 23 years of age. Go to the 23rd Avenue, okay? And you go at the end of the 23rd Avenue and you stand in the Atlantic Ocean on a beautiful day like this and you say, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I say now before all of creation, 
based on the authority of the word of God and the shed blood of Christ on the cross for my sin, I belong to you. I'm yours. And based upon the fact that I belong to you through the work of Jesus, not because of my performance, I rejoice and I sing and I dance and I walk in obedience because you're good and you love me and you're not going to bench me. No one can take me from the Father's hand. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I belong to you and you go forward. And, and, in, and in two days or two weeks when the devil who whispers horrific things into our ear comes to you and says, how could you have done that how could you, when you were that age? How could you have had that thought? How could you have carried that out? You say, you, you, say, you, you, know, you know, right, you're right, Satan. I did that, but that's covered by the blood of Jesus. I belong to him because I've committed my own way to Christ, and I affirmed that on April the 17th at 23rd Avenue, standing Atlantic Ocean with the dolphins looking at me. And Satan, go to hell. Go to hell. Because that's where you belong. Listen, don't listen to that voice. Don't listen to that voice. Martin Luther, who died in 1546, a long time ago, would, would, would sense a demonic presence in his study, and he would pick up, pick up an inkwell and throw it at the devil. He had blotches all over his study. You know, he had modern art before modern art was cool, all over his study. And he would get on a piece of paper, he'd get a big ink pen, he would say, I am in Christ. And that's why I was able to write in, in a hymn, you know, one little word shall fail him, the devil. The little word is Jesus. You're in Christ. I want you to rejoice and be glad. I want you to worship because worshiping glad people honor the Lord. So, so have an existential moment if you need that and just say, it happened here. At this point, at this date, I believe that. And trust God. The third thing is this. Be aware of the devil and spiritual warfare. Be found that the, the, the devil wants to cloud your thinking, wants to obscure the beauty of the cross. He wants to make you someone who is, operates on the issue the based on performance and comparison. You know, you, I, I do this frequently. Why? I'm not as good as that person. You know, the truth is, I'm not. But that has nothing to do with my standing in Christ. So beware the devil pushes you to, to be involved in the comparison game, the performance game, uh, the way you look, the way you act, the way you, whatever. He, he clouds your vision and he obscures the beauty of the cross. That's what he wants to do. To find your significance in how your kids perform or how much money you make or whatever, whatever. But here's what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says, behold the glory of Jesus which produces joy and laughter and worship and freedom and self-forgetfulness and repentance that leads to joy. Now, repentance that leads to being beat up, but leads to forsaking sin and running to joy. I want that for you. I want that for me. Because, you know, people that know they're saved and they make their calling and their election sure, and the people who know that when they go to heaven, they'll receive verse 11 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, a rich welcome. Those people laugh and sing and celebrate and worship. 
And those people are kingdom-minded people who tell people about Jesus. They're kingdom-minded people who pray for unreached people groups. They're kingdom-minded people who just love the reality of Jesus. Man, I want that. I want life short. I want to be like the people who, when you see certain people, you're just glad to see them. Oh, I'm so glad to see them. I want that. Let's pray. Uh, we are so thankful this day for your absolute goodness, Lord. And, uh, Lord, I, I really do pray for people who will hear this little sermon and they uh, think they've trusted you, but they can't get assurance. I, I pray that they would glory in the cross and have an encounter with you and be a rejoicing, thankful person who sings and dances and worships and loves and is full of kindness and gentleness. I pray that I pray for those, Lord, who have never trusted Christ, that you would speak to their hearts and show them the wonder of sins forgiven by the God who came to earth and died on the cross for their sin and rose victorious over death and ascended into heaven. Wild and glorious story that it is. Prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years brought to fruition in the person of Jesus. I pray, Lord, for those who have a cultural, familial faith that doesn't impact the way they live. Don't let them, don't let them harden their hearts to you. I pray for our kids, or their kids would love you. Not just know about you, they'd love you and worship you. So Lord, work in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, please. Thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts and the Holy Spirit teaches us to cry out from the very depth of our being, Abba, Father. Abba, dear Father. Dear Father. So Abba, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church, very much.